This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, And today I have an episode for you that I heard this man speaking on the radio and I thought, God, I wonder what his job is like, was like. I wonder what that whole situation is like. And I thought, well, if I'm curious about it, it's a great episode uh, potential episode. So in studio with me, I have John Lonergan, the former governor of Mountjoy Prison. John, thank you so much for coming in. No, I'm um, pleasure. Yeah. Uh, what? How do you? First of all, how do you become the governor? What is a governor of a prison? Are you like the boss of the prison? Yeah, I guess it's um, it's a legal term. Uh, the go- governor being uh, because the, the individual person who's committed to prison is committed by the courts on the basis of a warrant, a legal document, and that warrant is addressed to the governor of, in my case, the governor of Mountjoy, directing me as the governor to take that person's body alive into prison to maintain it there uh, and to keep it in custody until such time as the law uh, permits the person to be released again. So in accordance with the law, so. It's is a legal term. But other than that, for the lay person, it's the principal or the, the, the director or the manager um, of the particular prison. And you're responsible for the day to day operations of the prison, answerable to the Minister for Justice in relation to the running of the prison and answerable to the courts in relation to ensuring that the warrants or the orders of the court are carried out. So what kind of orders of a court? Just like take this person's body, maintain it. Or well, would, there a, be yeah, more, would there be more detail sometimes well, with different people? Well, on very rare occasions, there may be instructions like around medical or psychiatric uh, treatment. Okay. But generally speaking, the warrant is pretty basic in, in that it commits the person to custody for a specific time. It has to have a specific time. The only time there's not a specific time is in, uh, in the case of a person sentenced to life imprisonment because that particular sentence is indefinite. But all other sentences are definite. So you're either remanded in custody custody for a week or a fortnight or a month or whatever length of time it is um, the name and address of the person if they have a name or if they give a name uh, or it, as a description but 99.99% of people have a name and they give a name and an address if they have address but some individuals would be have no fixed abode and they have no address um, the crime you're charged with or convicted of okay. uh, and then the specific length of time and it has to be signed by a, a legal authority and it's usually the a district court uh, judge if it's a district court and it's the registrar of the higher courts. Okay, so my understanding is that if you're held in if if you're held in remand that's so you get arrested for something and you're kept in prison until the court date comes up. Yeah. And, but that's not the case for all people. Some people are allowed to still live their lives while they wait for their court date to come up. Yeah, well, that depends on the courts. Uh, if you're charged, you appear in court and then it's a matter of discretion initially at the district court because that's where everybody starts off. Uh, and most people... Does everyone start off there no matter what they've done? Absolutely, yeah. Even, okay. even murders, which we regard as the most serious crime, they'll always start in the district court. That's and where you'll that, be initially charged. And is the initial charge... So say if I kill someone on a Tuesday and was arrested... Would I be in court straight away quite soon and in the district court and then either on remand or... Well, it's, matters, it's a matter now for uh, in relation to the guards. The guards have to carry out an investigation and they have to be in contact with the director of public prosecution okay. who is an independent, is an independent office obviously that decides whether or not somebody will be charged and with what particular offence. So if the guards arrest somebody and they satisfies the director of public prosecution that there's that the person arrested is uh, certainly uh, warrants a trial, well then the 
the DPP will direct that that person is charged with, in this case, murder. So the court then will will hear the district court will hear this and then remand the person in custody because the district court can't give bail okay. uh, to somebody charged with murder. But they can give bail, but they don't always give bail. So it is it's a matter of choice and discretion of the courts. So what would happen to the murderer? Would they be kept? So say I murder someone, I'm arrested. What happens until I get that, like how, lo- how long all that happens, that takes with the DPP? What happens oh, no, to no. me in the interim? Oh no, if the guards arrest you, you're in guard of custody and they have, again, the law dictates how long in relation to a particular offence. Uh, and during that process then, the, uh, you're not actually charged, you're in for uh, under investigation or for questioning. Well, I wouldn't uh, be in Mountjoy at that point. Oh I'd gosh, be in, no, no, be in, in a, a guard prison, station, in a guard in station. A local guard station. Okay. Here we'll stay up in Pierce Street. Okay. And you'd be in Pierce Street until such time as the director of public prosecution directs the guards what to do and then they'll bring you to the court and form well just before the court they'll formally charge you mm-hmm. with the offence and then you uh, but if you are charged with murder then you, it's inevitable then that you're going to go to uh, Clover Hill the remand prison uh, initially and you can apply eventually to the High Court for bail and the High Court may grant you bail even though you are charged with murder and in is is Mount, are people in Mountjoy sometimes on remand, or are they always just after they've been charged? Gosh, I mean, in my time, uh, yeah. way back when I took over as governor first in 1984, we had a huge number of remands, maybe 140 or 150 remands out of a population of about 600. So those so, could be innocent people. Well, quite well. They're all innocent in terms of the law uh, yes. uh, until such time as they appear in court and are convicted. So the principle uh, is that you're innocent until proven guilty, and it's up to the state in our system to prove that you're guilty. So yeah, we'd have quite a. I had quite a. Then uh, in the early two thousands, Clover Hill was built as a remand prison. Um, some of your listeners would would uh, remember the the referendum on bail to reduce, uh, you know, the 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 rights to bail. Okay. And uh, Nora Owen, which was Minister for Justice, brought that and as a result of that bail was curtailed a little bit and they built a new uh, remand prison and so the remands then were taken out about Shaw and the vast numbers of them now are in uh, in relation to Dublin are in Clover Hill So tell me about you what how do you what's the how do you become a governor? What were you before? A guard or a lawyer? Okay, you know I started off in the prison service itself okay. uh, in 1968 53 years ago I'm nearly afraid to mention it oh, so God. long ago and down in Limerick Prison in those days you applied for the position it was advertised in the national papers you had uh, did uh, an exam and an interview uh, with the old Civil Service Commission at 45 Upper O'Connell Street uh, it's no longer there and uh, and then if you were uh, found to be suitable you had to pass a medical test and then you were assigned to a prison on a two years probationary period prison officers are uh, have civil service staff Status, which uh, is a very important, uh, uh, you know, and significant thing. Status, uh, and uh, I was I was appointed to Limerick Prison, and then uh, at various stages I moved around the country. And in 1984, I was appointed uh, Governor of Mountjoy. Um, in, in those days, um, it was a matter for the Minister for Justice at the time, and as it is yet, really, but uh, it was very sort of uh, very much a decision of the Minister at that time. And there was no such thing as uh, interviews or competition for it. Um, you were chosen. Com- 
Yeah, yeah. Now you would have been uh, interviewed at different stages lower down. Like I was the deputy governor at the time, but um, governors were appointed. Nowadays there are interviews like like everywhere else. The whole yes. system has changed, and uh, you know. But so and people can be appointed nowadays from outside. They don't have to be. Uh, in my time, they were exclusively from within the prison system, but that's not no longer the case. They can actually appoint a governor now from outside if they wish. We'll come back to the role of governor, but what was it back in those days that made you think, this is what I want to do? Actually, I didn't. Uh, Just saw the advert. Yeah, I mean, I've often said this when I'm talking to kids or young people in school, that most people end up doing things they never dreamt they'd be doing. Now, the the odd few have a dream to be something and they will be that person and they'll turn out to have that position. But huge numbers of people end up doing things. Certainly in my case, I didn't even know prison existed when I was growing up. Uh, I never knew anyone worked in prison and I never knew anybody is in prison. So, uh, but so I just happened that I, uh, I, I, uh, I knew nothing about it. And then when I was appointed, I suppose the most significant thing was I spent three years in Limerick. But then I was sent to Shangana Castle, which again is no longer there. But it was an open centre uh, for boys between the age of sixteen and twenty-one, and that that really was a completely different job. And I was working with young people in a in an, a non-security uh, institution where where the emphasis was on trust and activity and I must say I like that and uh, and that's really but after that once I got I guess like everything else once I got to know the job and got to know the uh, I suppose the people that, that uh, were brought to prison uh, I got then onwards I, I did certainly like the job and, I, and uh, you know I got great job satisfaction out of it uh, could never say that you know you got enjoyment out of it because it was that type of job that you wouldn't be getting a job but it got a lot of satisfaction yeah you were quite known at the time and still for being very liberal in your views. When you went into the job, how was prison perceived and how did it operate and how has that kind of changed? Wow. Uh, in 1968, uh, 660 people in prison in Ireland, tiny number. Um uh, four or five or six or seven women and the rest were men but the 260 of that 660 were boys between the ages of 16 and 21 so we only had about 400 adults in prison three prisons Limerick Port Leash and Mount Joy uh, so it was a very very small uh, prison system and it was fairly harsh uh, the food was tough the regime was tough um, what was the regime like? the like- regime was tough you spent um, you sp- you got up in the morning at 7 o'clock prisoners did and they went to work before breakfast and then that half past eight they got their breakfast what was uh, work like? Work was boring, um, breaking up firewood, making old mats uh, by hand, um, laundry, washing clothes. Um, washing clothes for themselves? For themselves, uh, yeah. Um, or were they, do they ever have to work doing stuff for, that would go out of the prison then? Um, very little the, the mats uh, quite a lot often went out to places would you believe like golf clubs where they, they'd put these huge big mats to try to save the grass okay. and, and uh, especially for the winter time uh, some so in Mount Joy before my time they, they had a, a contract with a fairly local here the the, the, the old glass company mm-hmm. and they were making mitts that you could hold you know the, the heat uh, mm-hmm. and so they were sewing them so there were some jobs in the women's prison they made a lot of toweling 
and that toweling was used around the prison system. Uh, but 99% of the work was boring, uh, like as I said, laundry, uh, making, uh, you know, the, the splitting firewood, all that sort of stuff. And was that like by design to be kind of punitive? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the whole original idea was, uh, yeah, uh, you know, you, heard, you might have heard of the t- term hard labour. Yeah. Well, hard labour was part and parcel of the old prison regime where you, you had to do boring work uh, consistently, uh, you know, for long hours uh, with very poor equipment and all that sort of stuff. So, so the idea up, was to punish, yeah. So they'd get up at seven, work for an hour and a half, then... Get breakfast, which was pretty tough as well, in the sense that it was uh, tea, um, which was boiling hot, and they were in, in uh, tin mugs, um so they, so you could imagine the boiling tea in tin mugs. How do you look? T- wanted sugar or not, or milk? It was all put in together anyway. Uh, so you had no choice. Four slices of bread in those days. The bread was cut the day before, so it was pretty stale. If you cut bread even today, uh, a, a, an ounce of margarine. A stark margarine, which is absolutely obnoxious. I mean, people use it for for cooking, yeah. but anyone I never tasted it. It is absolutely obnoxious, um, and and that was it. Like um, that was their their breakfast. breakfast. Um, and then then they they were locked up for that as well. By the way, all dining and still in ninety nine percent of the prisons, all dining is done in cells, so they don't have any any communal dining in any of the prisons. Um, except in the Doka Centre and the open prison. So The Doka Centre is the women's The women's prison, prison and they have communal dining but everywhere else it's, it's uh, in the cells. Why uh, is that? Well, I'm for a number of reasons. Facilities were not the biggest okay. one. That's not, second thing would be security. Um, they, you know, if you have communal dining, it's, it, it is a place where the, you could have trouble yeah. and you could have security issues where you'd have an awful lot of people sitting together and all that sort of thing. And then staffing is an issue as well because you have to try to give staff breaks for breakfast okay. and things like that. So there's a lot of issues uh, in, in governing why uh, you hadn't communal dining. But the main one would have been security mm-hmm. and um uh, mainly security. So they'd have their breakfast alone or in their cells. Is yeah. it a single cell or would they well, be? Well, in my time again, um, when when I started off in 1968, it was exclusively single cells, except with the exception of a small number of cells which are known as triple cells. And that meant three people would be in a cell. And they were exclusively for people with psychiatric difficulties and illness and uh, people who are not well uh, and maybe suicidal. And uh, so they were, uh, but there was only one or two. And I think there's only one in, uh, such uh, uh, cell in Limerick. Uh, other than that, you'd be sacked if, if two prisoners ended up in the one cell. Right. Okay. So it was absolutely, totally uh, unacceptable. Uh, but then in the 1990s, with overcrowding, the government brought in a statutory instrument to enable governors to double up. And today you have 50% of prisoners doubled up, which is, by the way, one of the most backward steps that was taken in the Irish prison service over the last 100 years. In what terms? In how it Doubling up is a horrendous uh, uh, experience, and and uh, you know for the prisoner. Infring- yeah, yeah, it There's infringes no on your mental health. It infr- infringes on on your personal space. Uh, you know, and and your uh, particularly your mental and, and psychological well being. If you're sharing in a very tight space, and at the moment with COVID, spending maybe 23, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, locked up in the one uh, Clover Hill, believe it or not in the early 2000s was built on the principle of triple cells even though it is a remand prison so if you go in you're going to be definitely sharing a cell you can imagine at the moment 
with COVID. Uh, three people having, and uh, you know, you know nothing about them when they come in. By the way, they just come in off the streets in the sense that you don't get any information about them. Uh, but yeah, doubling up uh, nowadays uh, is, is, as I said, fifty percent. Is there any argument to say that, like, being alone in your cell for all that time would be equally as difficult, or like that there's some sort of companionship or some sort of social element. Now, I know the fact that they have to use that cell for all of their, like, for all of their day. Now, um, see, I suppose if you were, you know, in, in, a, in a, a small number of cases, if you had choice, for instance, and if two people got on or if you had brothers or something like that or good friends, maybe you, know, you could argue that okay. there were some pluses. But of course, the reality is that you don't have any choices and, and uh, people have to share. So it facilitates bullying, as you could imagine. It facilitates sexual abuse, which you could imagine. Uh, and it facilitates drug abuse. Uh, they are three very huge issues uh, so uh, and the culture which you probably wouldn't know and many of your listeners wouldn't know the culture in prison is very 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 antagonistic against anyone that would make a complaint um, as as it would be in many organisations and groups of people outside but within the prisoner community uh, so if you're being abused for instance the, the pressure is on you not to complain not to report the other prisoner to grass in prison or to, to inform or to squeal or whatever word you want to use for it is is absolutely persona non grata and in no circumstances is it acceptable. So lots of people would be getting a tough time in prison but the culture of the prison would be that you don't complain. And is there not a responsibility on the prison officers to ensure that someone isn't being sexually abused or bullied? Of course there is and uh, if they know but I mean as I said the, you, you, the culture is They're not monitored like a, 24-7. Well it is impossible to yeah. know if the person didn't tell you. Now on, on, on some occasions individuals will complain and they will be removed but often what happens then is that they end up in what's called uh, protection which means that they're by and large uh, their regime is very confined and they may actually end up 23 hours a day locked up because of the fact that they're at risk and the governor's responsibility is to ensure that they're safe. So you can Imagine when somebody says that I'm being bullied or that I'm uh, getting a rough time or I'm at risk and then you respond to that. Well, then the other prisoners know that he, he must have a complaint yeah, or he must have a grasp as they would see it. Yeah. But it's the culture that's fascinating that is absolutely, totally unacceptable. Actually, within the prison community, prisoner community, it's the worst of all crimes. To grasp. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, of course, it is that way in the criminal community outside as well. Yes, okay. And in the, in the drug culture. So it's a consistent uh, pattern that cons- that travels into prison as well. And what can be done about that? Like, as the governor, well, single did you... single cells have- certainly protect 99% of it. Okay. And, and that's why. Uh, as well as that, for your mental health, I see what you... People, again, outside would not know that if you are sharing a cell in a prison, you are never on your own. Now, we all need time on our own, oh. uh, wherever that is. We go for a walk or you go into the bathroom or you sit in your room or whatever. Like human beings need headspace. We all do. We need privacy. We need to be on our own at times. And that's the one thing you don't get if you're in, uh, if, if you're sharing a cell. So you can imagine uh, if you're doing a long, a long sentence. And for me, a long sentence would be anything over three or four years. Um, you, it, it's tough and it, and it is detrimental to your mental health. I've no question. I've no doubt about that at all uh, even though you can put up an argument that company but again you see if you're co- if the company is imposed upon you and if you don't get on with the person yeah. uh, well then you know just a simple thing the person just is a talker 
Well, if he's talking t- three o'clock in the morning and you want to go to sleep, uh, you can just imagine how crazy that can become. Uh, so there's there's so many negatives. I mean, hundred over a hundred years ago, the principle of single cell occupancy was established in England, and it therefore came to Ireland at the time because we at the time we were governed by by the British, uh, and that principle was recognised around the whole world. And uh, and the reason for abandoning it is uh, Alan Shatter, the former Minister of Justice, when he was cutting the sod for the new prison in Cork, which is again based on double uh, cell occupancy. He said the ideal is single cell occupancy, but we can't afford uh, uh, single cell occupancy at the moment. I have a number of questions. One, the first one is, can you talk me through what a cell looks like? What what it's what's what's in there? Well, very 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 little. Um, uh, modern cells, uh, they have intricate uh, sanitation, which mm, the cells in Mount Joy in my time did not have. So slapping mean? out was uh, was a regular feature of Mount Joy when I was all of my time there. So they had a uh, bucket. They had a pot, yeah. Uh, and they uh, went to the tiles in the cell and then slapped out in the morning, which was horrendous. They had no washing basin or washing facilities within the cell. So they had to do that uh, on a communal basis as well. So uh, there was a bed and nowadays a uh, bunk. So you have two beds in most of the cells that's what happened gradually one cell was doubled up and then two and then is three. it one on top of the other or? one on top of them generally speaking yeah uh, some are some of the modern cells may have two se- separate beds but uh, quite a number of them are, are bunks and uh, uh, in the women's prison nowadays there's quite a lot of, of uh, beds on top of one, uh, over one another as well so there's a bed there's a, you, uh, you, a little table and a chair or two chairs if you have two prisoners uh, and uh, bed clothes and, and that's about there's a little television in every uh, in every cell as well um, 14, 15 inch little television uh, in order to occupy and that w- they were brought in for the purpose of trying to uh, counteract what you said the boredom in cells mm-hmm. and the boredom of being, spending a long time in cells uh, and that's about it so it's, it's pretty, pretty sparse And what are prisoners allowed to bring in with them? You have a television is supplied and you have a radio. People can have a radio. They can get books uh, from the library. There's a, a, a very, uh, you know, the Dublin in Dublin here, Dublin City Libraries provide the books in the and there's uh, staff trained to pro- provide library services. Um, so generally speaking, uh, if you want to uh, study, you can study uh, some small craft work can be done in the cells. Some fellows would would be into that type of stuff, doing craft work or doing artwork. But over the years because again because of security and drugs a huge amount of that flexibility has been removed because of technology first of all of course the being able to like you hear everyone hears about more mobile phones in prison and uh, how do they get those in and how do they get drugs in well, drugs are, I suppose, phones and, and drugs go hand in hand to, a, to some degree in the, in the sense that they're both, uh, you know, of, of vital importance to people that are in prison. If you're drug addicted, well, then drugs are very, very important. Uh, and phones are there for mainly, uh, you know, I've often said this now, the main purpose of phones would be to for prison. The real, the main reason they have them is to, is to keep contact with their families, even though they're allowed phone calls under certain uh, restrictions. Um, but they, 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 it's very complex how phones get in. Uh, it's very complex how drugs get in. Um, there's a you know they're smuggled in. They're throwing a lot of stuff is thrown over the walls. Um, uh, all sorts of ingenious things and I've always accepted myself that there's always the possibility that some staff members are involved in it for whether they're blackmailed to do it or whether they're corrupt or whether they're 
sympathetic uh, are planted, which is a possibility as well. But there are certainly uh, some evidence to, to say that some uh, contraband is brought in by staff as well. Not a huge amount, uh, but then again, if you look at a number of staff, if there's 200 staff in, in a place and there's only 1% of people corrupt, uh, that's two people out of 200. And two people can do an awful lot of, of uh, damage. Nowadays, people are search all staff are searched going into prison. There's technology in like like going into the airport. But despite all that, uh, contraband is still getting in and particularly phones and drugs. Now, drugs are, are a different problem because they're so uh, small and it's so difficult to detect them. Uh, and and I have to acknowledge as well, uh, they they you know they they have a tremendous ability and skill, uh, it's uh, you know to to break down security systems. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just good at that sort of stuff, and uh, and uh, the walls, of course, are, are over the walls are a huge factor as well. Uh, all our prisons, by and large, have, have public access on the outside. Mount Joy, uh, Clover Hill, Wheatfield, uh, the Midlands in Port Leash, even from the backside. Uh, so Limerick Prison, all the prisons uh, have access from, from the public areas. And, and, and for, for that reason, uh, it's a lot easier for them to, to yeah, get Yeah, because con- I was walking down the canal during the lockdown because um, I live in Cabra. So I was walking down behind Mount Joy and I used to live just at just in front of Mount Joy and there's you know the, the, the two big wooden beams that open on a canal yeah. I stood up on those and looked over into Mount Joy and there's loads of like there seems to be a net over and then there's like lots of different kinds of spheres so like footballs tennis balls oranges and a friend of mine was saying oh yeah a lot of those will have drugs in them and someone will have tried to throw them over the wall into like while the prisoners are out in recreation time, is that yeah, what you're... yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I tennis balls, uh, footballs, uh, they are able to, they uh, you know, many times are able to break down the nets as well. Uh, they try, they throw over something like a, a piece of steel that's, that has been heated and is red hot and will burn a hole in the thing. Um, so there's 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 ways and means. Um, so they get them into the ground. You'd have pres- prisoners under pressure as well. Uh, prisoners that might be trusted like cleaners and people like that that would be under pressure uh, to pick up stuff around the uh, around the grounds um, but a lot of stuff wouldn't make it yeah absolutely and a huge amount of, of drugs would be confiscated uh, but you know but still some some Somewhere make their way yeah. I'm taking a break from my podcast to now tell you about the most bizarre podcast I've ever listened to but curiously hilarious you all know Michael Flatley the Lord of the Dance star well, apparently he wrote a movie ages ago called Blackbird, right? Which is sort of like a James Bond theme thing where he himself stars and it goes around sleeping with loads of women. Anyway, no one's ever seen it because it never got released, right? But he wrote it and made it. And this comedy group called the Bootsy Boys are remaking it in podcast form. So if you look up the Bootsy Boys Blackbird podcast, they are in sort of short episodes going through this movie, what they think the movie is. And it's it's really short. It's like a burst, an injection of energy and hilarity into your day because it's so bizarre. Just check it out. First episode, they're very short. You'll know from the minute that you're in whether you like it or not. And I think it's strangely addictive. Check it out. The Bootsy Boys Blackbird Podcast. Tell me, are you still looking for something worth dying for? Oh, kid. I left all that behind me. These days, I'm much happier as the humble owner of this down-to-earth and incredibly exclusive nightclub. Mick turns his head away and stares pensively. 
dancing hot sex man adventure romance he will kick several nazis and get in your pants Listen to the Bootsy Boys Blackbird on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I want to give you a quick note from our sponsors. And before I do that, to remind you that if you support our sponsors who support us, that is how the circle of podcasting keeps going. So our sponsor today is Rockwell and their financial planning service. It's designed for people who they just kind of feel like they want to just put a shape on their finances, get things in order. And that is from whether you are a senior executive in some multinational company or a young couple or a business owner, anyone who just wants to get a head start on their financial planning, they're here to help. They sort of consider themselves financial doers rather than financial planners. There's a lot of action in there and a lot of support. So no matter where you are in the country, it doesn't matter. They can help you over Zoom or in person. Uh, Pensions and investments, they're huge, you know, they're hugely important, but they're useless really if you don't know why you're using them, where they are and how, how they're getting on. So Rockwell are really about outcomes in business. It's not just about the plan. It's it's action-based. So they use like award-winning investment advice to help their clients achieve their goals. And they have a special offer for basically listeners. So if you go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash Stephanie, you can book a complimentary, which means free, financial planning session today. And you'll get a cash flow model which will outline any gaps in your finances and give you your first steps towards achieving specific goals for you. Guys, I have something so exciting to tell you. Guess what it is? Listen to these sounds. These are the clues. I have merch. I have merch. I have a pen, which sounds like this. And I have a notebook, which sounds like this. What they look like are a notebook and a pen. The pen is sort of bamboo, and they both say, basically, with Stephanie Preisner on them. Actually, the pen just says, basically. And they are on sale now, and you should buy them. The pen costs €5. The notebook costs €15. You can buy them together. That would cost €20. But if you are a Headstuff Plus member, which costs €5 a month, you get the pen for free when you buy the notebook. Anyway, I know you're so excited. Just stop listening and go on to shop.headstuff.org and buy the merch. Send me pictures of you and the merch on my Instagram, which is at Stephanie Preisner. I'm so excited. It's a beautiful notebook. It, it's black and it has a little, little thing so that it stays closed and the pen is like clicky and smooth and it's blue when you write with it. That's important to know. And it's five euro and the notebook is 15 euro. And I'm very excited about the merch. Go buy the merch. Is the the purpose of prison to punish people to the point that they're so, you know, broken from the punishment that they won't ever do it again? Or to take, like a circuit breaker, to like take people out of their context, try in some way to rehabilitate them with the hopes that they can go back into society and not reoffend? There's no question in my mind that the overriding purpose of prison is to punish uh, I never got anybody sent in to me to be rehabilitated, even though 
uh, people talk a lot about rehabilitation, but most people don't understand what it means. Uh, it's a it's a nice word and it sounds well. And even officialdom are very good at using that uh, that st- that sort of wording uh, rehabilitation. But what is actually being done, uh, and what control have you over rehabilitation? And the answer is none. It's down that's down to the individual because if the individual person doesn't want to change, and that's what you're talking about, a person who wants to change, well then uh, you're at nothing, and you can't force people to change. You can you think you can, but you can't. So prison is really there. Uh, it's also a very effective deterrent, contrary to what a lot of people would say outside. But most people would be terrified if they were sent to prison. Mm-hmm. And a huge percentage of people would be absolutely, you know, uh, terrified of ending up in prison. And the stigma attached to going to prison for middle class and upper class people would be horrendous. So prison is very effective as a deterrent. It doesn't deter, unfortunately, the vast numbers of people who go to prison come from very identifiable areas and they're all poor areas. Areas. And for them, uh, p- crime and going to prison is part nearly of their everyday lives. And and it's a v- indeed it can be a badge of honour to boast almost uh, that I was in prison in their communities. But of course, that's not the case in it with for the vast numbers of people. Uh, so in terms of rehabilitation. I also have to be very blunt with you and say that, especially over the last 15 years, uh, you know, the, the levels of of, of uh, uh, programmes and the number of programmes that are in place to help people to do that have been reduced rather than increased. And uh, so for me, by the way, if you said to me, well, what is it? For me, it's education. Uh, the vast numbers of people, would, again, people don't know this or they don't understand it or they don't, they're not aware of it. But only in Mount Jai in my time, only 6% of the male population stayed at school after 16. And now that's not the leave insert. Only 6% stayed at school. 57% were gone by 15. So the levels of education would be very low. And you know, I'm one of those who believe that without education in 2021, you ain't going anywhere. Uh, of course, the challenge really is... Um, to get people who need education to go to education because it has to be voluntary. Yes. Uh, so what happens in reality is that if a person goes into prison who is educated, they are almost almost certain to sign on for further education uh, because they know the value of education. And the further education really within need, the prison. Yeah. 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 But, uh, but the uh, people who need it won't sign up. Well, and the culture, would you believe? Again, going back to the prisoner culture around grassing or or informing, the prison culture as well is anti. Uh, why are you going to education? You're getting too big for your boots. Uh, you know, the next thing is you'll be gone from us because you'll be educated. So they, they, a lot of the uh, the prison culture would be negative and saying to guys who are very impressionable at that age of their life because they're immature and that's part of the problem why they're in prison in the first place. They're very much influenced by that culture. So it's a huge challenge to try to get people to sign on for uh, for education. And... Uh, so it, it's, you know, I, I when I was there, uh, you know, I found uh, the, the arts in particular, which, which again would be maybe, uh, you know, surprising to some people. But the arts, drama, music, uh, art, painting, all that, they were particularly, uh, uh, I suppose, attractive to many prisoners. And it was often the first stepping stone to get them involved in something. To, so what, yeah. Was there more of a culture of accepting the drama, music, art than the education well, with that community? Uh, initially, I suppose drama, you know, in, in 1985, when we started at first uh, as, a, as a project, uh, quite a number of the hardline prisoners would be anti-drama uh, and anti-everything. But eventually, uh, by uh, over a period of, of 
20 years most of them were were, were one or about and and, and uh, uh, became very very much involved in it and it provided tremendous uh, I suppose self-esteem building and self-confidence building and quite a number who just got involved in something like the drama then went back to school and did different courses and and made and some of them never went back to prison again so it it had tremendous ability to get people involved and that's part of it the inv- I, 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 I had a simplistic thing if you have a prisoner inside in a training uh, workshop in an educational unit uh, in an art or a drama project if you have them inside the door you have some chance you have no chance when they're out in the exercise yard walking around in in big groups uh, and it's the very same principle on the outside if a young person is out of the education system uh, when he or she should be in it uh, you have no hope you're, you're, you need the, the biggest thing and the biggest challenge is to get them inside and of course once you get them inside at least then you have a contact and if you can develop that contact and that connection there's a chance that you can uh, motivate them and, and, and encourage them Was it did you um, as governor were you is it a sort of a managerial role or do you have contact with the prisoners in the way that like a school principal has contact with the students when when there's need to, but generally not usually? Uh, over the years, I had quite a lot of contact. Yeah, I got to know quite a number of prisoners very well over the years and their families and their generation families. I, you know, by the time I was 42 years in total working in the prison system and during that period, I, I dealt with uh, three generations of the same family. So you had the grandparents, then the, the their children and then the, the grandchildren. Uh, and that was, I suppose, sad and, and, and depressing as well to see generations like that where it was accepted almost that you go along with it. Uh, I got to know Oh, yeah, huge numbers of prisoners over the years. Uh, I, as a policy myself, I've, I've been freely accessible to them. So if I was going around the prison, they could come up and talk. Uh, and quite a, quite a number of them would uh, come to see me. And believe it or not as well, uh, over the years, because I was in Shangana, uh, 16 to 21 year olds for a few years, and then I was in Lahan House with the Bugsy Malones, as they were known in Dublin in the late 70s and early 80s, would you credit that? I mean, a lot of those kids kept coming back and back and grew into adults. And uh, so I knew them from a very young age. And, and that was obviously as well uh, depressing. And then and then the odd one would never be back. And, and that was uh, that was very, you know, very positive as well. So you think that the prison system is capable of rehabilitating someone if the person themselves wants to be rehabilitated. Oh. There are programmes there for them. Oh, gosh. Um, uh, not adequate. I never said there was adequate. Yeah. People don't realise. But if you have, you know, in my time anyway, uh, six to seven hundred and uh, for a period nearly eight hundred, if you have six or seven hundred people in a prison, it, it, you need a huge amount of resources to, to occupy them positively. So what's the reality is that huge numbers of prisoners are just walking around exercise yards when they're out. So they're involved in nothing simply because in Mount we only had a accommodation to facilitate about 150 prisoners in active activities uh, and we had up to 700 maybe over 700 at times uh, so you can you can see that a huge numbers of people are, are, are disconnected so. they're not connected in anything so they have nothing to do and it's not their fault now there's an equally a number a significant number that don't want to do anything yes. and they're quite happy uh, this is where you know culture comes in if you're you know growing up in an environment where nobody works 
works, for instance. Well, work isn't part of your makeup and you're, you don't want to work and you'll never work and all this sort of stuff as, as, because there's a discipline to it and there's a commitment to it. And it's the same with education. But if you're, if you're in, a, in that environment where there's a huge amount of negativity and where you're told from a very young age you'll never be nothing, well, then it's likely that that prediction will come true. And so the person... And then the addiction is a huge problem because if you're addicted, you, you know, you're going nowhere uh, while you're addicted unless you deal with your addiction. And that's a big challenge to get people who are addicted to drugs in particular, but also alcohol, but mainly drugs in the in the prison context to get them to, uh, you know, to do something positive about their addiction. Because it, while you're addicted, you ain't going anywhere. You're not going to school. You're not going to go to work. You're not going to be able to do anything about your 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 own lifestyle uh, because you're you're involved in drugs. And, and that's another huge challenge. How do they manage like, because obviously if they're, say they're addicts on the outside and they come in, they're not going to have as much access, surely, to drugs. Like, how do they deal with, like, the withdrawals? And I do know that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous do go into prisons, but that's obviously a voluntary, like, people have to want to go to that. They do, yeah. It's totally voluntary. Um, I, I suppose a, just as a rough rule of thumb myself from my own experience and from the base of some research, about 50% of people uh, who go to prison with an addiction, like drugs in particular, but with, with alcohol. But it's easier with alcohol because it's more difficult, obviously, to get alcohol I into mean, the prison. To yeah. smuggle it in is nearly impossible. Towards it, it is possible with drugs. About 50% actually give up drugs. Uh, now, I want to emphasise they haven't dealt with their addiction. No, no, they've just they become just drug free for a period of time as the wording they use themselves is to get my head together and that and that and they do actually improve uh, you know physically mentally and emotionally they put on weight they look better they get, they're getting you know better sleep they're getting better food they have a structure in their life uh, and they're not taking drugs so but they haven't dealt with their addiction and for the, for most of them they're not outside back out a day when they're back on drugs again so they haven't dealt with their addiction but they have stopped taking drugs and then the rest uh, up to you know some people that would be trying to get drugs and use drugs every day to people who just do it occasionally so there's no question that prison saves you know uh, the lives of some people and it really helps people at the very bottom and uh, uh, but they uh, the pro- now we ha- there are quite a number of drug counsellors now seconded into the prisons in all the prisons uh, from Merchants Key uh, they second counsellors in there so there's a there's a programme available for people and uh, there were psychologists in my time I'm sure they're still there motivational psychologists and clinical psychologists and uh, addiction nurses uh, so there's a lot of infrastructure in the prison if the person wants to do but as you know uh, it's a real challenge to deal with the issues that are caused or contributing to addiction uh, be, being in the wrong places and putting yourself in at risk and all that there's a whole lot of factors that, and sometimes breaking away from the company you keep so you have to to, to, to uh, separate yourself from maybe the best friends you had while growing up because they're all into drugs and these are the sort of issues that a lot of guys are not able to deal with and won't deal with so you were saying when you started in Limerick Prison about what it was like, what the what the food was like, what the day was like. When you were leaving Mount Joy, can you talk us through like a day in the life of a prisoner at that time? Yeah, more yeah. The, the, certainly the, a few things that improved immensely over the years. And I'm not taking any credit for this, by the way, but the food, in, 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 I mean, unbelievable, the improvement in the food in the terms of, you know, being getting a decent, decent food compared to what I was told to you at the beginning around yeah. Limerick, which was brutal. 
Um, so in, the, 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 that was the first thing. The second thing that improved dramatically was uh, medical uh, uh, support and services because we had 24-hour nursing, a lot of doctors coming in, uh, specialists in different areas, psychiatry services. Uh, Professor Harry Kennedy, when he took over as medical clinical director of the Central Medical Hospital, made a huge contribution to improving uh, in-house uh, psychiatric services. Inpatient uh, psychiatric services are still appallingly inadequate, but in-house ones are, are greatly improved. So what happens in a, in a nutshell is staff came on duty at 8 o'clock. The vast numbers of prison officers in particular came on duty at 8 o'clock. Prisons were, prisoners were unlocked around a quarter past 8. Um, um, in my time in Mount they had to slop out. They don't have to do that anymore. But uh, and, so, and then they got breakfast. And breakfast was self-service. So they came down uh, from each landing down onto the ground floor, lined up like you would in a restaurant at self-service and select what you had. In my time, the breakfast was, you know, relatively good. You got a cereal, a little box of of, of uh, uh, cornflakes or uh, whatever, uh, um, uh, half pint of milk, a pot of tea, four slices or eight slices of bread, all the bread you wanted, uh, butter and margarine and an apple or an orange. So the food had had greatly increased. Uh, but you're locked back up for that for mm-hmm. about 20 to 9. Uh, staff went for on their breakfast break then until 10 past 9. At 10 past 9 you came back, you were unlocked. If you had work, education, any uh, uh, services like probation or you wanted to go to the doctor, or, you did all that from about uh, 10, quarter past 9 onwards. Uh, around 12 o'clock people were started going back into the prison again, uh, being up to their cells, falling in then uh, in, in rotation to ke- for, for dinner. Dinner is uh, you know, in terms of again, uh, relatively speaking, uh, excellent. But the prisoners may not say it is excellent course, because again, yeah. you're talking about you know a food that's a tradition like uh, fish and chips and chicken and chips. If they had that every day, they'd love it. But a dietitian would be saying, no, no, you need balanced food. And as a result of that, sometimes prisoners would say the best of food is, isn't is shit. Like, and yeah. of course it's not. But uh, but and and then you're locked up again about qu- uh, half twelve twenty to one until two o'clock, quarter past two, when staff come back and unlock you again so you can see you spend a lot of time in uh, being locked up or being unlocked uh, back then to work or, or visits I forgot to mention visits visits would take place between 10 and 12 and 2 and 4 as well in my time family visits uh, they're more restricted now because of COVID but uh, uh, you're entitled to one visit a week and sometimes you could get a special visit with a family member up the tree uh, and that took place between 2 and 4 as well in Is the that afternoon. in a private area? or uh, eight, uh, Seven visits in my time in Mount Dry took place in the one a cubicles like long cubicles with seven different visits but there could be 20 people at the other side of the counter and you can imagine okay. again uh, no privacy and very little you know so the, the, you had you had physical you know you had the contact of the person being there but of course you you know in terms of dialogue and communication and privacy can you make very, physical very contact limited. with them um, strictly speaking not but I mean some people you know on some occasions they would have some uh, physical contact again drugs being the scourge of that because in the old days that wasn't a huge issue but because of drugs it becomes a, it became a huge issue because they were able to pass drugs and did af- often pass drugs uh, if they if could put, put, put their hands Are they like behind the screen? There was a sh- in my time in my job there was a little barrier of about two feet high uh, in some prisons are totally screened like Clover Hill totally screened 
screen. So there's no contact at all, okay. uh, physical contact allowed. Uh, in, in, I'm not sure obviously at the moment with Mount Joy, but in my time in Mount Joy, uh, there was a, a sh- lower screen but they, they weren't totally screened except yeah. they were uh, wa- uh, put on screen visits as a result of breaching the other visits <coughs> so then uh, you know at four, about half past, quarter past four they would come back again again from work back into the prison back to their cells and get their evening tea and uh, that would be served around half four twenty to five they're locked up again then until half past five and at half past five or twenty past five they'd be out for evening recreation uh, looking at television walking around the exercise yards uh, some of them stay in their cells uh, half seven or twenty past seven they'd get evening tea a corn bun usually um, another pot of tea uh, into bed and locked up on at about half seven until eight o'clock the following morning and that would be the routine except on, on Saturdays there'd be no work uh, shops there'd be no education and the same on Sunday so those two days would even be more boring Wow. And so like if they don't have work or a doctor, can they choose themselves to just walk around the your recreation yard or do they have to stay in their cell if they don't have something else to do? No, no, the, the vast, vast numbers would be out in the exercise yards walking around, aimlessly walking around, uh, boringly walking around, uh, but quite a lot of them would be quite content to do that. Yeah. Uh, there would, uh, I must mention this as well, there'd be a, a number of them that would take an interest in their physical well-being as well, and so there would be uh, exercise rooms. Uh, a few prisons have gyms, gymnasiums, but most prisons have what we'd call, uh, they're called gyms, but of course they're not gyms, they're just rooms that were converted into exercise Quite a number of them would would uh, you know be into bodybuilding and keeping themselves fit and all that sort of stuff. So, so what's in that room? Like, is there weights? Weights and, and yeah, and, and and all these different exercise bikes and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Uh, uh, so uh, the staff in my time anyway uh, that were involved in it, including teachers, uh, but the staff would have been trained, and the emphasis would be against bodybuilding. It would be uh, the emphasis would be on uh, physical education mm-hmm. and and fitness rather than building big getting muscles. bigger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and what. What would you hope, like what, how many prisoners are there like around about now? So when you started, there was 660, did you say? Yeah, yeah. And now? Now, yeah, well, today around 3,800. That's about 500 down because of COVID. Uh, about 500 were released. Uh, the courts, of course, are not sitting as often. Uh, there's a lot of backlog in relation to trials and uh, all that sort of stuff. So the numbers are a little bit artificially down at the moment, around 3,800. They would be more likely, if things were normal, to be around 4,300, 4,400 today. Just to give you, maybe to put it into perspective worldwide, because we all know, understand now, the hundred thousand measurement in relation to COVID and where the you know the rates of COVID around based on a hundred thousand of the population in prisons that has been used for many many years uh, the Seychelles would you believe uh, uh, is the highest uh, rated uh, island or country in the world with for, for prisoners per hundred thousand of the population of around 660 uh, followed closely by America the USA uh, over 600 uh, some then other countries Eastern Bloc countries uh, China of course we don't really know fully and uh, and the better countries are the ones with the lowest levels of imprisonment would be the Scandinavian countries, the Nordic countries. They have around 60 per 100,000 of population. And then where does Ireland come in? Ireland comes in around 80, between 78 and 80. So as you can see from that, we're we're on the lower side of uh, per 100,000 of the population worldwide. What we're inclined to do a lot in Ireland is to put people to prison for short periods of time, a lot more than most countries. So two years is our most popular imprisonment period. 
period. About 80% of prisoners would be serving two years or less. Um, and in reality, that means 18 months or less because they get a quarter off for good behaviour. So you can see that we use prison, uh, you know, the way we use prison, we use it a lot for short term and there's only there for 20% of people serving long sentences. And long sentence in our case would be anything over two years. Wow. Okay. So does that mean, so then if you're in for two years, it's it could be a case that like people don't really, if you're in that community, it's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go in for two years and then I'll come back and do this again. And like two years doesn't seem like a huge, it's like if you're a millionaire and you get a traffic fine, it's like, I'm not going to pay for parking. I'll just pay the fine if I get clamped, you know? Yeah, well, there's a bit of that in it, in the sense that uh, what you'd find though is that the people who go in for that are generally now. There's always exceptions, and I want to emphasise that because when you're generalising, there's always a danger that people will say, "Oh, well, they, they all go in." But quite a number of people go to prison uh, once off, one uh, year, two years, and never come back. But I, you know, the, the the more normal thing is that if you're into that category of crime, it's lower, you know, it's non-violent, low nuisance crime like shoplifting I know people listening will say um, shoplifting isn't but it's a non-violent crime and it's petty in that sense and uh, I myself would would distinguish between any violence and other crime in, in my opinion I would be totally harder on any violent crime than, than non-violent crime Are they crime. all together in the population? Oh, they're like all if- yeah, there's all mixed life for, uh, uh, for you know except people who are in for, uh, for child abuse and rape they are separated because the prisoners insist on their being separated because of the dean, because they'd attack them. Right. Okay. Even in the prisoner community, believe There's it or not. There's a hierarchy of. Would you believe that? Crime. Yeah. We are better than you. We are we are decent criminals, but yeah. you know we only we only beat up elderly people. We wouldn't dream of abusing a child. You know this yes. sort of corrupt thinking, uh, and we, and if you're if, if the, the, the word sex is mentioned in any the minor detail, you are persona non grata within the prison population. So Again, sex crimes are not yeah okay. because we're better than that. We wouldn't do that sort of stuff, which is rubbish. But that's the way they that's the way they are. So operate. if someone who works for some big corporation is arrested and imprisoned for tax evasion. Yeah. They're in with these criminals who are murderers. Yeah, yeah, that is in Mountjoy anyway. In my time, yeah, you could have people. Oh, yeah, because people again had this fascination that you know, he's, he's, where are the murderers? As if they were different. Murderers are exactly the same as everybody else, except that they murder somebody. And but by I'm just the way, saying, you know the way when you say that, you know, they judge like you're getting too big for your boots. Don't go to education. Like I imagine the idea of some upper middle class person coming in for tax evasion. That there would be a culture clash there. Absolutely, and sometimes they would have to be protected. Okay, in, in some instances, depending on who they were and their own personalities. But yeah, a guy coming in uh, or a woman coming in from a middle class area for some crime like that would certainly find prison uh, very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, why do you think? <coughs> The numbers are increasing. Like, has the law gotten more tight? Is it that there's people are in need more, so they're turning to crime? What's your perception of it? There's a whole lot of factors. Um, drugs being the biggest single factor. You know, again, just to give a, uh, your listeners an insight, about 80% of all people in prison are there directly or indirectly related to drugs. Wow. So that's a fascinating, shocking figure. Um, and that's what I keep telling young people all the time. Uh, you know, you have lots of people out there telling young people drugs are harmless. Uh, there's, no, there's no such thing as a harmless drug. Uh, and drugs, uh, you know, c- contribute hugely to crime. Directly about 
about 20% of the population directly involved in, in drugs. That means importing drugs, storing drugs, transporting drugs, growing drugs and selling drugs. They're, they're, they're directly involved. And a huge percentage, about 60% indirectly. And the indirect uh, uh, population are made up of people who are robbing money to get money to buy drugs. Okay. So they're being hugely exploited, by the way, by receivers, which, which is fascinating in Ireland. That gets no mention at all. The the huge industry that's out there in, in terms of receiving. Because if you're a drug addicted person and you rob something for 500 euro worth in, in, in Arnott's or Brown Thomas or some big store in, in Grafton Street in Dublin, you sell it for 20 or 25 euro because you only want to fix a heroin or a line of cocaine. The person who receives it can now sell it for 300 euro, make 280, 270 euro profit. But they don't see themselves. But they're never, ever, ever hardly brought to court and they're hardly ever imprisoned. But there's a massive industry because why? Where? what good would it be to you or me if I stole something, if I couldn't sell it? Yeah. I wouldn't be able to get any money for it. But they know that there's a market there and they know what they're up. And now even when they break into a house, they know what they, they need they, they, or what's, what's, you know, marketable for them so there's a there's an industry out there and that industry is contributing hugely uh, to shoplifting and to robberies and all that and it's seldom if ever uh, you you know if you if you look and observe you very seldom see receivers uh, being brought to court and being sentenced what else do you think people should know what would you like to see change well, what people should know is that prisons generally are absolutely populated with people who come from the most deprived areas. Uh, we don't have modern research. Uh, the last piece of decent research that was done in relation to social backgrounds of prisoners was done in 1997 by the late Dr. Paul O'Mahony. We haven't done anything uh, to, uh, re- to replace that since. But that piece of research showed that in Dublin City, for instance, six tiny little areas supplied 75% of all Dublin-born prisoners. So we know these are tiny areas. They're not ju- postal districts. These are just small, tiny geographical areas within six separate postal districts of Dublin. And they, they supplied 75% of people. So we know that people go... Education, as I said, uh, he found that that education, only only 6% of people had stayed at school at 16. Uh, 88% were unemployed before they came to prison. Uh, and, and one in every four had, had an inpatient history in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, so if, if you put all those things into the pot, you realise that social deprivation and poverty are still the major contributory factor to criminality. Now we'll still have criminals and there'll always be people who will be involved in crime irrespective of if we had the most just society in the world, there'll be still criminals but the reality at the moment is that, and it continues on, this is 97 that's 23, 24 years ago, quarter of a century ago and nothing has changed uh, in, in terms of that and so that's the big challenge for society if we were serious is how do we start to level the playing pitch and where do we, how come that some children are born into areas and it's inevitable they'll end up in Mount Joy, for instance, and the same children of the same age born somewhere else are it's highly unlikely. Prison is only only affects a tiny percentage of people, and the vast vast numbers of those people come from the most deprived areas. That was always the case. It's worldwide, by the way. It's not just an Irish thing, and it's certainly something that's very seldom addressed. Yeah, it, when you put it like that, it seems like. Some people who are in Mount Joy, it's been like ridden in the stars that they end up there. They had no ch- like because of the circumstances they were born into, they hardly have a chance. Thank you so much for coming to speak to me today. It was absolutely fascinating. Not at all. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Basically. I hope you're enjoying the episodes. I really am. I could have listened to John all day. Um, 
kind of fascinated by prisons and prison life and he's just such a liberal and fascinating man for his time and and for our time anyway I'll stop yattering our music is by Only Ruin our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara we are we're, we're produced by the Headstuff Podcast Network uh, at the podcast studios on Pierce Street our producer is Alan Bennett and catch you next week This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.